Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate, And it's here where I'm going to delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today, and as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire. They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N-Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends or your family and with people you know or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest on this episode, Kyle Green, began working as a mortgage broker in 2006. And since then, he's been carving out a very strong niche as an investment property specialist and an entrepreneur since about 2008. His now many years of experience working with real estate investors and investment groups such as Rain have made him a very reliable resource for financing investment properties in Canada. But it's also brought him to the stage, our stage, for example, as a speaker and as an educator. Since 2011, he's been a top producing franchise agent in British Columbia, and he's now in the top 1% of mortgage brokers for annual funded volume. He writes a lot of articles and they've been featured in many publications such as the Vancouver Sun, The Province, Western Investor, and many others. One of his proudest awards is the Real Estate Action Group Joint Venture Award for his deal of the year in 2010 in which he closed on a $1.15 million property with none of his own money. Well done, Kyle. His entrepreneurial spirit and his creativity goes a long way in finding ways of getting tough deals approved, hence the top 1%. And now, during his free time, Kyle loves to play hockey, watch Canucks hockey, and hang out with friends, and probably talk more hockey. Without any further delays, Kyle Green, ladies and gentlemen. Kyle Green, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. So great to have you on the show. So welcome. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Now, Kyle, I know you, but the listeners don't know you, and... I know you, and I'm excited to have you on the show because we're going to talk about some cool stuff. But if somebody walks up to you and says, Kyle Green, what do you do? Yeah. What's your answer? 
I do mortgages. <laughs> um, so I've been doing, uh, doing mortgage financing for nearly 13 years. For 11 of those years, I've been in, uh, in the world of, of working primarily with real estate investors. That's about 80% of our client base. And um, we do about 70% residential business, 30% commercial. And our business has started to evolve into doing a lot more of the commercial business of the last couple of years. So uh, doing a lot more business loans and some really cool financing on that side. Okay, but you're not just simply a mortgage broker. You are a business owner. I mean, you tell me a little bit about the business that you have grown and that you started and that you've kind of stepped into. And tell me a little bit more about that. I, there's a couple of points I want to get to, and I'll get to those in a minute. But so give me a little bit more background about the green team. Yeah, so there's uh, there's ten of us here. Uh, I've got a I've got a big team. Um, I'm always looking to grow and, and looking to expand the business. And um, the last two years in a row, I've been the number eighteen mortgage broker in Canada for funded volume. So we're doing well. Um, but at the same time, number eighteen is not good enough. <laughs> I want to grow some more. Um, we're big on systems, processes. Uh, we've been working really uh, really hard on a, a CRM system called Pipe Drive, actually, which. For anybody that's interested in a very easy-to-use, intuitive uh, CRM, that's the one that we've been using and have really enjoyed it. What's it called um, again? Pipe, Pipe Drive. Pipe Drive. Got it. Yeah. One of my guys in, in-house, my office manager, he um, he actually took that uh, that role on to be our in-house tech guy. And when we, whenever we have our bi-weekly meetings, um, we always have some suggestions that come up as as far as you know what we need to implement in the system, how we can create more automation and and uh, be more efficient in what we do and um, and he's taken on that role. And it's, it's very nice and simple because it's not like Salesforce, for instance, it's great. It's a great big monster. It does a lot of cool things. Um, but being able to just take an hour or two and implement a couple of new things, it would be very difficult with that system. So we joke about, you know, you, you've been on our stage and you've been doing this for quite a number of years. How long have you been doing this? 13 years. Right. So the joke is, is that you started when you were 11. Yeah. And because, how old are you? 32. You're 32 years old. You've now grown a business of, does that still qualify? Does, are you still, yeah, I think you're still a millennial at 32, right? You're still in that. Barely, yeah. <laughs> Barely, yeah. but you are. And that's not a bad thing, by the way. I, I mean, here's the thing about what I like about what you're doing and what I'm I'm seeing. Now, I, I, I got, I've gotten to know you over the past several months. You're part of the Rain Finance Center. I was really, really impressed when I sat down with you and Keaton, uh, your right-hand guy, and just the way that you approached business, the way that you had a conversation with me about what you're doing and what your plans are. Now, that's all to say and give context to this is that you're kind of a in that upper percentile. I wouldn't, you know, I'm not going to call you a unicorn like in that rareness, but how you show up, how you drive your business, the people you surround yourself with. For a young guy that's, you know, an entrepreneur is pretty impressive. And I've always been impressed by that and your degree of professionalism. And as we sit here, you know, you're in your blazer and your tie and your matching shirt and you're like always put together. You're young, you're in shape and you're always considerate. You're, you're forward facing. You've got all of the stuff that how you handle clients. So that's just to give listeners some preface or some insights into how I view you. Sincerely, I view you, view you. And you came to me in the conversation and, and said, what can we do to support you? It wasn't like, what can I get from you? It was, what, what can I get you and give you? 
So that was a really uh, unique approach. You don't, I don't often have those kinds of conversations. And, and so it was just interesting, especially from somebody that's 32 years old. I think you're kind of ahead of your time. So my question that I want to get to is, and we'll talk about mortgages and I want to talk about financing, but I want to talk about you and the building of your business. And even what you said here, you know, you're really into processes, you're into systems. And this is one of the things we try and drive home with real estate investors all the time. You treat your real estate investing like a business, have processes, have systems, have a team, like all of these things. So where did you start to cut your teeth in terms of that entrepreneurial look at things? Did you go to university and take it on? Did you go to college? Was your parents? Give me some background of how you got to this level of success. 18 in Canada is not bad considering how many mortgage brokers are out there. So, yeah. You know, it's hard to know where exactly it came from. My dad um, uh, was self-employed. And so he became self-employed probably around the time that I was about 10 years old, I would say. Him and a business partner started up a uh, software company that um, that helped lawyers with legal cases. So if uh, they did business with uh, Air India case, Enron, some big other, um, big other court cases where you could fill up you know, your entire house, and you've got a pretty big house, by the way, but probably fill up your entire house, floor to ceiling with, uh, with files and documents. Um, they created a, a, a software that um, allowed you to easily scan those in, sort them, have everything in, in what's called OCR, OCR format. So something that was easily searchable, uh, basically converting PDFs to, to a Word document that made them searchable. So I think watching my dad, you know, growing up and being at that age, um, Help me understand why being an entre- entrepreneur was a was a good thing. I've always had that entrepreneurial spirit, though. Um, my first, I just remember when I was a kid negotiating to do extra chores as long as I got paid extra. <laughs> so, <laughs> Show me the like, money. Show oh, 100%. me the money. Yeah, 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 I remember coming up with a system when I was in grade one or grade two, um, where we create. I remember proposing this to the parents and say, Hey, if I did extra things, maybe we could devise some kind of point system where I would get more income if I did more stuff. Um, so that was at a really young age. Um, my first job was, uh, was delivering newspapers. And I remember, I can't remember how old I was. I was either 10 or 11 and I was supposed to be one year older to be able to deliver newspapers. And I remember getting the application and there's that point where I read it and it said, you must be X age in order to do this. And I kind of had that moment where I looked up at dad and dad kind of looked down at me and we, he just kind of nodded. <laughs> and I said, okay, yeah, I'm lying on an application so I can start delivering newspapers. <laughs> so um, my first regular job, I guess, was working for dad. Um, so what happened is if the scans would come in and they wouldn't be um, straight, I would literally have to draw a line on the computer along the jagged edge or the, the not straight edge and it would straighten it. So I got to uh, I got to listen to a lot of music during <laughs> during my summers, as I would just pop in headphones and um, and straighten pictures. Probably the most boring job I've ever had, um, <laughs> but the money wasn't too bad. You yeah. know, when you're 14 years old, making I can't remember what I was making 10 bucks an hour or something like that. It right. it adds up. You can buy a lot of Lego with that. So <laughs> <laughs> no, was Lego yeah. your thing? Uh, when I was really young, yeah, yeah, I loved Lego. Yeah. Well, I think it speaks to a little bit of brain, right? Like it's like because you're using words like systems and processes, and did you ever consider being an engineer? Because it's kind of how your brain seems oh, to fire. Sure. Yeah, and then yeah. And, and then Lego is like all of that design stuff, and you know, got some engineering that comes with it. So that's why I yeah. asked. Now, totally, did, yeah. Now, did you go to did you go to school? Now, did you come out of school? Did you go to university or college around 
like, did you go for an MBA? Did you, what was your, or you just went to the university of real world hard knocks? Yeah. So, um, most people, when you see me on stage, you think, okay, probably an MBA or went to call a university or something like that. So not so much. So when I was, um, when I was young, um, I was really good at math. I didn't learn very much in math. In fact, I got into a, got into a stage where I would take the math test and I got an A on it. Then I would go to the gifted classroom and, and basically mess around and play cranium and make volcanoes and stuff. But it really, they didn't really propel me forward. Um, and I think what happened is I developed some lazy habits. So you realize, Oh, okay. As long as it's do good enough on the tests and, and whatnot, I can get by and I can play lots of street hockey and play lots of hockey. And I don't want to admit this, but care, uh, play way too many computer games growing up. And, uh, so actually looking at my high school transcripts, not too long ago, my grades, so I was like a C average student probably, mm. except for the courses, except for math, economics, um, and English, probably the most important ones, math and English, I would say, but, uh, wasn't a great student. So after college or after, um, high school, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Applied, got into, um, uh, Douglas college for business, business management. Cause at the time I was a supervisor at Tim Hortons and kind of like managing people. I didn't really like doing the work as much as I liked getting other people to do the work. And, uh, so I went to college and we're after working there going to school for about a year and a half. Um, I got a job at Westminster Savings Credit Union and I just turned 19 and thought, oh, this is awesome. I'm getting in the financial industry. I want to be a stockbroker. That was my thought at the time in 2005. I'm glad I didn't. And uh, eventually after working there for five months, I realized that uh, working in a unionized environment was not really a good fit for me. I like to work hard and reap the benefits of those rewards. And they weren't, um, they kind of overhired and then we're cutting hours through attrition. So I wasn't getting a lot of hours there and I like to be busy. Eventually, um, I got a job working for uh, some mortgage brokers, being their assistant and doing some paper pushing stuff. Uh, a friend of mine and I were chatting on MSN and I was complaining a little bit about Westminster Savings. And she said, well, my parents are looking for some help doing some mind-numbing paperwork stuff. So maybe check it out. But okay. <laughs> Didn't really sell it, but <laughs> good. there's a good pitch for you. <laughs> exactly. Right. Um, this happened to be the youngest daughter in the family. The two oldest daughters worked either with the parents or in the industry. Um, and this was the rebellious daughter. So I don't really think they expected much out of me. <laughs> sure. Um, but, uh, started in November of 2006 there, um, worked for two months and then figured, you know what, I'm kind of interested in doing this full time. And uh, I remember them sitting me down and thinking, okay, number one, talk to your parents. Number two, we don't really have a full-time position available for you, but at 10 bucks an hour, we do. And to put some context in this, I went from making 15 bucks an hour at Westminster Savings down to working, uh, making $12 an hour part-time with them to making $10 an hour full-time. So I'd gone down a pretty significant amount in my, in my pay, but I knew that this would be short, uh, short-lived. Um, got my license the following May, and, and uh, that first year in the industry, actually, I made, I think, about $50,000 after making 10 bucks an hour for the first four months or five months of the year. So, so you had a great year, and, and then you got into it. Now, what was it about being a mortgage broker that appealed to you? Was it when you, when you entered the game, was it strictly the opportunity to make a lot of money? Or what, what was kind of the driving force for you? I think I literally left that interview thinking, I'm going to have a Porsche by the time I'm 30. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Very cool. 
Did you hit, yeah, well, hey, did you hit it? Did you buy yourself a Porsche uh, or did you say you not, not the best use of my money? After working with investors, I can't, I can't do it. I can't do it. <laughs> can't bring I've got to buy the appreciating assets first, you know? Um, but, uh, obviously when you're, when you're 19, it's a lot of, it's about the money at that age. And you start to learn later on this, not just about the money it's finding the right fit. Um, I lucked out though, because after, after doing this for a while, I remember sitting down with a friend and, and he was kind of drilling me on, you know, why do you do what you do? Why do you enjoy it? And I'm like, Oh, you know, it's, it's good. The money's good. And this and that. And like, no, no, no. Like why? Like what your core, what makes you want to do this? Um, and I realized that from a young age, I'd always loved people, money, and numbers, those three things. I was always good at that. Um, I find a lot of people are either good with numbers or good with people. There's not a lot of people that are a good combination of both. Also being a mortgage broker, you have to be both detail oriented and also a salesperson. And a lot of people aren't a good combination of those two. So you really have to be good, especially when you're starting off at not only bringing in new customers and clients and, and having the charisma to do that, but also being able to sit down and say, okay, now I need to verify your pay stubs. Now I need to dig into this, cross-reference all the paperwork. So, so I just happened to be a, a good hybrid and a good fit um, from a personality perspective for the industry. Now, are you, do you have some altruisms or some idealism around where you are a contribution? Because here's part of it, right? I know that a lot of your business, or I, I, I'll let you answer the question, but I believe that most of your business is investor-focused mortgages. Is, is that true statement? So they historically take a lot more work because mm-hmm. they, you know, lots of deals, lots of hair on them and lots of, you know, whether it be a joint venture or there's lots of banking changes. I mean, there's certainly some challenges and some headwinds that you're constantly facing and working with investors. So do you have, is there kind of this altruistic view of the world where there's contribution, there's relationship, like what, let's dig down one layer back to the question that your friend answered, asked you, you know, what's really yeah. at the core of what you're doing? Because it also inspired you to actually take a next lift on growing a business. So you're actually growing your brokerage and you've put a team together. You know, I've been in business 35 years. I, I mean, that just takes a lot of work and like lots of focus. So give me a little bit of background on that, Kyle. Yeah. Um, I think, especially in the early stages of my career, and I still really enjoy this part, although I do a little less of it now. Um, I really like putting the pe- the puzzle pieces together mm. and solving complicated things and getting creative. And there's a lot of being a mortgage broker, you think, well, how much creative creativity do we really have? And um, we had a lot more latitude with that in the early game, early stages of the game uh, when I first got into the business. And a lot of that has shrunk, but there's still within the framework of what we do, there's still a lot of creativity that can be had by tweaking little bits and pieces here and there and sort of saying, okay, if we do this deal with this lender and that deal with that lender at the same time, we don't have to use the stress test of both deals we're doing. We can use the stress test on just the one we're financing with one bank and one with the other bank and just getting a little creative on, on figuring out how to work within the framework of what we do. Um, so I think I really got into the, the creativity part and just finding the solution and digging deep and calling all the lenders and asking, Hey, would this work with that work? And I really enjoyed that. Um, obviously it's really rewarding when you help somebody do something that other people couldn't do, you know, um, their banks said, Oh, I can't do this. They call me and, and uh, I'm able to put something together. That's, that's very rewarding. I really like helping people. I think as I've gotten um, older and, and wiser, um, I do think that now at this stage of my life, building a business is really where a lot of my passion is. I really enjoy that. You know, I still do enjoy doing the work, but as you build your business, 
you can't really grow your business if you're still a technician doing the work and doing the job. And so now my, my role has really changed to supporting others to do the work and helping them on those complicated situations and deals. And, you know, what really gets me excited in the day is, is building, building my business. So you're working, that's the, a bit of a cliche, but it's still because it, it works, which is to work on your business, not work in your business, to always be working yourself as an owner, to be always working yourself out of a job is a, is a pretty key part of, you know, building your business. Go back to the school days. So I don't know if I interrupted you or if we went down a rabbit hole. Tell me, you know, you came out of school, wasn't your favorite thing, but you didn't go to post-secondary on this. I, I did go to college for a year and a half. Oh, you did. And sorry, yeah. and what did you do there? Um, business management. Business management. And was yeah. it, when you look back on that, was that really beneficial for you? Yeah, there's some things that I picked up for sure. Um, yeah. I will, uh, for the record, my GPA was way better in uh, college than it was in high school. <laughs> um, I was a B plus average student. I think if you take two of those courses out, I think I was an A minus average or something like that. Right. So, I was because I was now doing things that I was actually enjoying and and uh, interested in. It made it a lot easier to uh, to to uh, to do that. So, and again, I think looking back, business management, right? I always liked the idea of managing others and building my own business. Um, there's definitely a few things that I pick out um, that I remember from certain courses that uh, that that still resonate today. Now, do you have a core? What's your? Do you have a core mission? Do you have a value statement? What's the culture? What's the core? kind of values of your business? Yeah, I think that um, you can improve your life by improving your finances. You know, um, I think that a lot of people underestimate that. And I think that we can help a lot of people, even people that won't qualify for a mortgage for five years. I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned there. And frankly, um, I'd like to see a lot more of this get taught in school. Um, it, there, there's a you know career and personal planning, actual course in high school, and yet none of this is taught. I learned a little bit in economics, but like nothing about how a credit card works or how to save money or how a compound interest works or anything like that. It's ridiculous. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I don't want to say a big fan, but I, I really appreciate Robert Kiyosaki's writing and his stuff. I mean, I think most have read the book, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad and a lot of Robert Kiyosaki stuff. I've just recently uh, finished reading the book, listening to the book Fake, which is freaking mind boggling of what and it, what's happening in the world right now. And uh, he actually talks about uh, school, why they don't do things in school. And there's a real opinion around that. And, and, I, and I actually uh, listened to it with kind of like, yeah, you're right. There's there's some issues that we have within our school system about what we teach. And a lot of that is is really tough for teachers to step into to actually set a context for financial values that, you know, the families don't share, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, it gets really messy. And I think that's one of the reasons they avoid it. There's others, but if you want to really dig into that whole conversation, uh, read the book, fake, uh, Kiyosaki does a pretty great job of it. You know, you and I are on the same page. And of course we're in a similar industry in that we are supporting real estate investors in, in growing a financial future, you know, creating financial security and certainty through investing in real estate. We're both pretty passionate about the game of real estate. And and I think, you know, from my perspective, I'm more passionate about, you know, the education, the teaching, the guidance, the leadership. And uh, that's part of my core values in in supporting others. In in your world of real estate investing, what do you, what do you personally anchor to? Because you've been on our stage. I know you've been on other stage and I want to talk about that in just a second. 
but what is it for you? And you know, when you're standing on stage, Kyle, are you there just going, okay, here's an opportunity for people to hear me and drive business. That's always an underlying, you know, I'll, I'll establish myself with credibility as an expert. Perfect, perfect, perfect. But is that your main driving force or what's the, what else you got behind that? Almost all of our marketing efforts, including getting on stage is, um, is, is really coming down to educational based marketing. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we try to educate people and build trust with people by educating them. Um, the goal is not to get up there and then hard close people on why they need to use us and, you know, the, use the fear of loss and all that kind of stuff. It's really just to get up on, on stage and say, okay, what's timely, what's important for people to understand today. And, and what are some of the important things that they need to consider and, and do in order to um, to continue to grow their real estate portfolio, so I, I think that even our outside marketing with uh, some of the things that we're starting to do more digitally now is is still offering information and offering value, trying to educate people on on how to you know buy your first home, um, buy your uh, first investment property, how to handle your mortgage renewal, a lot of, of things like that. We're just trying to educate people more on that and and um, and get them to a point where uh, they feel that because they've learned from us, that we, that's the value we've provided. And now they feel a little bit more likely to give us a call. And so that's really how we've tried to position our marketing efforts. When you, um, let's go back a little bit, because you uh, share a pretty funny story about how you actually got interested. Your first your first onstage appearance where you got yeah. thrown out in the in front of a, a 500 people. Uh, tell us that story because it's actually an interesting story, but it's an, it's also a statement of character. So go ahead, share that story. Yeah. yeah, so I think it was 2009 or 2010. So late 20, 2009 or early two, 2010. Um, I had done one, I think it was one trade show with a guy named Ozzy Jurok down here in Vancouver. Uh, he does a, a large event twice, uh, twice a year called Land Rush and Outlook. Um, and... Um, what ended up happening is I show up with my booth um, and Ozzy comes to me in the morning and says, Hey Kyle, I need, I need you to talk at one 30. thinking, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, now you're in your I'm, early, you're in your early twenties at that point, right? Yeah. I'm 20, 20 or 21. I think yeah, I was yeah. 20. Yeah. I think it's 20 at the time. And uh, I thought Ozzy, like I don't material up nothing. And I, I remember peeking into the room cause I, it was still early in the morning. I look inside and there's, got to be five to 600 people in that room I'm thinking, holy crap. So what we did is, is I told Ozzy, I can do a Q and a, like I can answer questions. I can talk on stage. That's not a problem, but I don't have a presentation. So there won't be any flow. So we did a Q and a afterwards. I had a mob of people come up to me at the stage and Ozzy shoot me off and get up, get out of here, get out of here, go, go back to your booth. And I had people following me through the crowd back to the booth and I was mobbed. And I remember the comparison between this event and the previous one where, okay, 20 year old mortgage broker with a little pop-up banner and some pieces of paper on a, uh, on a desk and people kind of walk by, look at you and think just another mortgage broker. All of a sudden getting up on stage without any presentation, any preparation whatsoever, all of a sudden the rest of the day, people are coming up to me, asking me questions, want to get to know me. And I realized, okay, this is absolutely worth it. I told Ozzy after that, I said, I am speaking every single time. I'm your guy. And, um, and from that point onwards, I was. So at 20 years old, you get out in front of five or 600 people, you know, given the, I don't know if it's a true statistic, but it's off, often stated, which is, you know, people fear public speaking more than they fear death. Um, mm -hmm. Don't know if that's true or not. I, it's one of those things that shows up all the time. I just know 
people really freak out on stage a lot. Some people are great at it, but uh, at 20, what was it for you that allowed you to do that? Had you had previous experience? Like what, what got you through that mentally? Wow. I, <laughs> dollar signs? I don't know. <laughs> Come back to that money. Holy yeah, cow. Yeah, <laughs> I know, right? It's one of my three things. Huh? One of my three things. Well, hey, but um, you know, so I'll, I'll share. Here's the thing. If one of your high, like I always, you know, when I'm coaching people, we talk about what are your five highest values. That's one of my, one of my things. And, and what are your high, five highest values? And, and often people come to, into a coaching environment because one of the things on their list is they don't make enough money. Often that's part of the conversation. And I go, well, what's your five highest values? And they'll go, well, family, you know, nothing's more important than my family. And then, you know, community, nothing's more important than my community. It's like everything to me. It could be a, a church, you know, it could be my, my church community, my, my Christian or religious beliefs, uh, my fitness, nothing's more important than my fitness. And then, of course, there's, they'll add something else to it. What's off the list on those high five highest values is money. And I go, you're amazing at your family or doing your best always to be at the family. You're, you know, you're staying fit and health is really, really cool. You know, you're supporting your church in a really, really profound way. You're, you know, participating in the community, whatever that you're doing all of these things. And we're having a conversation about the fact that you don't have or aren't making enough money because it's not on your highest values. And then you dig into that question and go, well, because money's the root of all evil, money should, you know, never comes before family. But that's the interesting part of it. So when you say, well, that's one of my three things, you know, the fact that people can, if people can own that one of their highest values is making money, but flip it into why it's important, uh, that's a total tangent. But I go back to it and I'm saying, I totally respect people who can actually say, one of my highest values is making money. Yeah, and I, I think it's just, I like to say that it funds the fun. It's a means to an end. It's a vehicle for which I can enjoy my life at its fullest. And I think that going to work, building my business and making my money while I do that is great. And then I like to have a lot of fun in my free time and like to do really cool things and travel and, and make the best out of all of my hours of my day. And I don't mind working 10 to 12 hours a day to be able to fund those extra things because it's rewarding when you know that you've got other cool things that you're doing with your free time because you can afford it. See, you know, fund your fun. I love that. And, and, and being 32 years old, not that all people are in that position, but at some point, the, the realization is that money also... If your highest value is family, community, charity, health, guess what? When you have money, you, you know, your kids go to private schools, you go on great vacations, you have great, you eat well because eating well is expensive. You know, your charitable donations can go up. All of the things that money can fund in your other highest values are really, really clear, but it's the way that money comes around. And I know that's a total off the topic conversation, but I think it's, I, I spot it with you. And so that's why I wanted to bring it up. I think it's yeah, really cool. For sure. yeah. uh, you know, you've got your team, you've got your build. Do you have, are, are you surrounded with mentors? Do you have a coach? How is it that, you know, cause I love the conversations with young people, uh, love young entrepreneurs and what, what's the difference between you and let's say somebody else your age. Why, why is it that you can take this on and, and others complain about it? You know, so mm -hmm. Do you have a coach? Is it is mindset a thing? What, what? How do you how do you take on what you take on and want to grow it? For sure, I think it probably comes down to two things. Um, number one would be yes, I do have a business coach. We've been working together since 2012, so we uh, we set up a um, a meeting 
I think a one-on-one -on -one meeting every quarter and then also a, um, a group meeting every quarter as well. And the group meeting we go into, you know, what are your quarterly priorities and your rocks? It's the, uh, the gazelle format, mm -hmm. um, which is based off of the book traction. So, or vice versa. So we, we focus a lot on that, making sure that you're, you're focused and you know which direction you're taking. And a lot of the time when he first says something or recommends something, you don't always think that that's correct in the moment and then a year later six months later a week later realize yeah he was right <laughs> you know but it's important to have somebody outside of the industry who's looking in with a different perspective on things because if you surround yourself with just people inside of your industry you everybody in this industry has a bias I actually was at an event uh, a few days ago and the creative director of Disney was speaking and he said that everybody has their river of thought and you kind of get carried away in that river of thought you surround yourself with people that are in the same industry as you all the time and everybody has that same bias uh, with the way that they think, then, then you just think that that's the way it is. And so I'm starting to learn something that I'm trying to, to now incorporate into my personal life and my businesses, you know, bringing people in that don't have that same river of thought and get new, fresh ideas about how I can apply those in my business. I think that's important. Um, the other thing too is kind of revolves around the, the thought um, um, and feeling of abundance and uh, I'm very open and, and happy to share with other mortgage brokers what has made me successful, what has uh, pulled me back or held me back, um, and sharing that openly with other brokers and not holding the you know keeping the cards close to my chest. I think what happens is everybody opens up and everybody with that uh, the mentality opens up and shares um, without worrying about anybody stealing their ideas and taking it and running with it. The reality is, best case scenario maybe 5% of your ideas are implemented by other people. They're not really going to compete with you, especially if you have a nice open forum where everybody's sharing and, and, uh, and whatnot. And um, I think that's been really important to be able to share with other top brokers. And with my travels for speaking engagements, I've been trying to find the top brokers in those areas. So when I go to Edmonton, I try and meet with, uh, with the top broker there. When I go to Calgary, I try and meet with the top broker there. When I go to Toronto, I try to meet with the top brokers out there. And, and just create a, a little, you know, meeting or brainstorming session and say, hey, what are some of the things that's working for you and some of the things that aren't? And let's grow each other. So this is a lot about, for me, is, is overall just attitudes. Some of it, you know, is it nature? Is it nurture? So let's go back a little bit to your, your parents. Were they pushing you to be an overachiever? Were, how, what was the relationship that you had with your, your mom and dad that was it a good relationship? Was it did you go, I'm out of here? Like, did you leave home early? Like, where is it? Where is it that? What, what role did your parents play in that? Yeah. So from a young age, um, they had me reading a lot and, um, and doing a lot of math books, et cetera. So when I was really young, I think, um, I was thinking about this a little while ago, but my parents had me when they were very young. I think my mom and dad were 17 and 18 years old, mm -hmm. something like that. So mm -hmm. I don't think I was on made on purpose, sort of that way. <laughs> <laughs> but I think um, one of the benefits of, of having me that young was that the, the grandparents stepped in in a really big way too. And the grandparents thought, Oh, geez, like let's, let's step in and make sure that things are done well. And I think that in, you know, I remember, still remember uh, my grandparents helping me with, with writing and reading and, and encouraging me to do more stuff. And then my, my father, making sure that I was getting ahead in math and getting, uh, getting really good grades in math. What ended up happening is my dad was, that was the guy that would kind of push. Um, I know that when his business started to take off, he had a little less time to keep the, 
pushing on. And I think that might, might be why my grades started to slip, but he was, he'd be the guy who I'd say, Oh yeah, dad, look, I got B's. And he'd say, okay, that's not bad. Why didn't you get A's? You know, mm-hmm. my mom, on the other hand, would be there just to support me no matter what, which at least would allow for that, that little bit of give and take where if you needed that, just that comfort of knowing that somebody's there for you and supporting you, whatever you end up doing in life, um, she was she was that person. So I had a bit of uh, a bit of both, I would say. So there's lots of reasons I wanted you on the show. It's always the premise of seemingly ordinary achieving extraordinary, and and you certainly qualify for me in that context. And and certainly I'm excited about watching your journey as you go forward. But I want to dig into a couple things. So when we talk about education, when we talk about what we've learned and what we know about investing in real estate and the possibilities and entre- being an entrepreneur and a business owner and you know relationship, all the things that we've learned, how do you think you relate to other millennials, other individuals your age? Like you're on the outer edge, right? So you're you know wherever you are in the millennial scale. You know, at, for me at 61 years old, it's like, okay, I, I, I know what I know. I mean, I just know because of lots of years in the world. doesn't mean I'm current with what the world that, uh, uh, you know, millennials are living in, but there's some things that I really understand. But what about you? Do you think there's a relatedness, more relatedness to you because of what you've achieved in that, in that same age category, that same genre? Or, or do you look yourself, do you look to older, wiser, more experienced? Like, how do you put that into perspective? Because of course, I'm always looking at millennials and I go, guys, I wish I would have known at 30 years old to start investing in real estate or 25 years old and learning the way to do that. And how did real estate really show up for you? And then what's the message that you get to other, you know, other individuals in your kind of age category? Yeah. Um, I mean, starting early, obviously, is a, is a very important tool. Just the simple understanding of how things compound um, is, a, is a really cool tool. I think that the, you know, relatability and, and the message to other millennials, um, and this is more from a personal perspective and career perspective, is, you know, millennials have full of passion. They like to do what they like to do, and they don't like to do what they don't like to do. <laughs> So one of the things that I think um, millennials need to be ensuring that they're finding for themselves is, is ensuring that they're in a, a job or position that is fulfilling them personally, or maybe they need to jump and, and be self-employed. I, I would not be surprised to see millennials be one of the highest groups of self-employed individuals um, at some point. I mean, I don't know if there's enough you know, usually people don't become self-employed right out of right out of college or university. But I think when we look back at this a number of years from now, we're going to look at that and say, hey, you know what? 25 to 35 or 25 to 55 year olds uh, millennials were actually the high the highest pocket of self-employed individuals, and I think that that would be very fulfilling for any millennial to be in control and in the driver's seat of their own success and their own failures. So when you're having conversations with millennials right now who are interested in investing in real estate or you're giving advice to somebody who is still in the quandary of, I don't know, can I do this? I don't have money. Uh, you know, how do I approach it? You know, what is the message? So if you're sending out a message right now, this podcast is going to go out to thousands and there'll be millennials listening to it. What would be a message that you would give to anybody, but let's, let's hone in on millennials, given your experience with them as you've been getting financing and stuff. Is there a message that you would give them? Yeah. Um, 
on that, I would say one of the cool things that I learned very early from my business coach was the phrase, anything works if you work it. Mm, one of my favorites. So, so um, I think the reality is like you can take pretty much any business and if you do it well, you can make money. It doesn't matter what the competition is. It doesn't matter what the, you know, I mean, obviously picking the right industry and the right job and everything is important, but, but you can make money or, or be successful doing whatever, as long as you work it. Um, it doesn't help to pick the right industry and just say, okay, I'm going to work three hours a day and see what happens. Right. Um, you really have to put your best foot forward and put the effort forward. So I, I think that that's a really important um, phrase that I'm always thinking of is that it's not if something is possible, it's just how it is possible and how best to do it. And sometimes the craziest, wackiest ideas, when you really flesh it out are actually very good ideas. And I think it's important not to shoot, uh, shoot those ideas down. So, you know, what I'm hearing in that as well is you've also got to commit, like you've got to take it on and take it on, work it to your point, anything will work if you work it, but you have to actually decide you're going to take it on and you're actually going to work it. There seems to be often in these, you know, the scenarios is like, I didn't know it was going to be this much work, or I didn't know it was going to be this hard to work. I didn't know these challenges were going to, for somebody like you who has, let's say one of your higher values, not just one of others, but I get making money, you're going, Hey, I'm willing to put in the time. I'm willing to work my ass off to make the money because what is on the other side of that is a lifestyle and some fun that I want to have, because I'm also driven to have great vacations and uh, take time away or whatever your other values are. And, you know, to your point, fund your fun. You're willing to put the time in to generate that because on the other side of the hard work is some really great payoff that you're committed to having as well. Would that be, I guess, fair? I'm just trying to recontextualize a little bit what you said. Yeah, 100%. So when you're sitting down with, uh, with you know, younger people, what kind of conversations are you having? So if, if, you know, if you're giving advice to somebody who's having a conversation with their younger, you know, with their kids, their 25, 30-year-old kids and saying you should get into real estate, and because they're parents, their kids are going, yeah, mom, dad, that's not my thing. You know, money's not my thing, whatever it might be. Is there some guidance that you can give them? Yeah. Um, I think it's just important to, um, another phrase that I like using is to begin with the end in mind and look at where do you want to be? And then you kind of work it backwards to figure out how do you get to that point? So we work with, um, you know, if we're working with a client who wants to build a real estate portfolio, we always start off with, by asking, okay, where do you want to go? And here's where we are now and how do we build that bridge? So sometimes um, somebody wants to learn more about real estate and they have no money and no credit and, and no income. Okay, well, it's time to learn. You need to be a professional joint venture partner, right? Um, you need to learn and ed be able to educate others on why they should be investing in real estate and why they should be investing with you. It's not that it's impossible because people have these preconceived notions. You can't invest in real estate unless you have an income, unless you have money. Um, and the reality is that you can be an expert in the industry and then attract money to you. So I think that it's breaking through a lot of those barriers and those preconceived notions that people have before they even start to, to learn about it and think about it. And I think it's really just a matter of trying to open people's eyes to what is possible and what are the steps you need to take in order to make it possible. So in the context of, you know, really financial education, financial understanding to our point, your point earlier is, I mean, we don't teach it in schools. Because you sit down with so many people, you're, you're, you get really up close and personal with where they are financially in their life. And, and you're asking sometimes pretty tough questions because you need 
very specific answers to accommodate those you know the outcome that you're trying to get because of all of the what you know the, the process of getting a mortgage and financing and stuff do you see a a big gap in in overall financial education of what people how they manage money or their understanding of ROI or their understanding of leverage or or mortgages do you do you really see a gap in that knowing or that knowledge in your generation of people in generation of of investors kind of thing for sure oh yeah and it's it's not even just um our generation it's it spans across all generations sure yeah and i think one of the problems is going back to the fact that it's not taught in school who's teaching you your parents and if your parents don't have it then you're not going to have it and unless somebody steps in and breaks that uh that chain then that just continues over and over and over again and so you know, I think that we we can all do a better job of trying to break through and break that chain and educate people on on uh, financial literacy and just understanding the basics. You know, if you're trying to buy your first home, then you probably don't need to learn about uh, ROI and leverage and all that kind of stuff right now. You know, a lot of this is going to go in one ear and out the other. But understanding just basic concepts about how credit works. I remember very early in my career sitting down with um, as parents and, and children. The children were adults, by the way, they're 20 years old or 21 years old. And speaking to the parents who had core credit and were talking openly about what they're doing wrong and, and I'm looking at this and saying, look, guys, you're missing a lot of your payments. And they said right in front of their kids, they're like, well, we couldn't afford last month's payment. So we just figured we'd double up on the next payment. And I'm like, wow. guys, it's not how credit works. <laughs> and they're teaching their children who also, poor, by the way, had poor credit, um, mm. these habits, right? And so we have to break that barrier and ensure that if you're not getting it from your parents, then it needs to come from somewhere. And to actually shine a light on it. So, you know, so let me, I'm going to list off four books. I want to see if you've read them. Real Estate Investing in Canada. No. Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Yeah. The E-Myth or The E-Myth yeah. Revisited, right? Yeah. And um, hold it. I had one other. Oh, did you ever read The Wealthy Barber? Yeah. See, okay, so, you know, you're in a real estate game. So, you know, I, I wondered if you read Don Campbell's book. Those four books, as old as they are, to me are absolutely, and I read a lot. At least I believe I do. I, I can consume easily one or two books a week when I'm on a stretch. But those foundational, those books were foundational. Wealthy Barber, I think I read before Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I mean, those books were written years ago. And as, But what's interesting about that, and the reason I share that is because I've now talked to many, many very, very successful people on the podcast. I've talked to many, many. And, you know, when I talk about what's your favorite book and what book have you read and, you know, had an impact on your life, always those books come up consistently, those four books. And I think that any parent should be having their kids, young kids, probably anything after 18 years old, read those books. They're eye-opening they're foundational. It actually will change, can change the trajectory of your thought process around money and understanding it. Agreed. Yeah. How old are you when you read Rich Dad Poor Dad? Just out of curiosity. This is just, you know, really curious question. I think that's actually the first one I read out of that bunch. Um, I was 20 or 21, I think. Yeah. Something yeah. Like that. yeah, yeah. Good. good. Uh, you know, that's a good age to start that conversation. Now, you know, if you're if you're listening to this, and and I'm, the, one of the reasons that I was excited about having Kyle, and and I'm not, I'm not picking on millennials, or I'm not even trying to paint anybody with a, a big broad brush. I'm truly interested in 
where somebody in your that genre of age group, given what you do and uh, the message that you're putting out, I mean, how you show up is awesome. I mean, you're like I said, you're professional, you're well spoken, you're you're accomplished, you've got great goals, you you're driven, you've got a great team of people that you built around you. I mean, that's pretty cool. So I look at that and go, gosh, what is it that you can share with others that would actually uh, help parents maybe communicate better with their kids around that? Or how do you, you know, what are some of the gaps that you're seeing that you would want people to know that they could pay attention or could pay closer attention to? So that's, that's why I keep going back to that, by the way. I mean, that's, that's the motivating factor for me in this conversation. Yeah. I think if the parents don't know it themselves, then you'd be doing yourself and your kids a favor, just by picking up any one of those four bucks that you, that you listed off there, Patrick. It's, it's important to, uh, to be able to educate your kids on that. I mean, it's kind of like the, uh, the birds and the bees book, right? If you don't want to have that conversation with the kids, that's fine, but at least give them a book that they can read so they can learn about it. Right. Cause this is important stuff. And I think that, uh, you're not doing your children a disservice. It's, it's really important to break that chain and give them that basic, those basic fundamentals on how things work. And something just as simple as making sure that if you want to purchase uh, an asset, should save up for it and pre-plan for it and say, okay, if I want to buy a car in a year and I want to buy a $10,000 car, then you should be making sure that you save up, you know, just under a thousand dollars per month. So you can actually afford it. Right. Just basic things like that and understanding how, um, uh, how much getting into credit card debts, et cetera, can really set people back. And I see this a lot with people, my age, uh, student loans are a bad one too. You know, um, I see a couple of, um, of people that uh, that were my age a few years ago, and and like, oh man, Kyle, how do I how do I get out of the student loan debt? And I look at it, and I'm like, well, how much do you owe? And he's like, well, sixty thousand bucks. And I'm like, okay, how much would you do your schooling cost? Oh, the courses were fifteen grand or twenty grand or whatever the number was. I'm like, what happened to their forty thousand dollars? You know, I'm like, oh well, you know, life and you know. Growing up is expensive in Vancouver, you know, <laughs> sure. like I know where you were on Saturday nights. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Granville strip is not cheap. I get it, but you have to pay for that at some point. It's not free money, you know? And so a lot of people just kind of assume, oh yeah, I'll pay for it later when I'm making money. But the reality is you should be saving a percentage of your income right from day one. And it's not that difficult. You get into the habit and it just helps you as you grow and grow and grow. You're continuing to save more money because that percentage um, of a higher income obviously increases over time. And it's a really easy thing to commit to. It's probably one of the easiest pieces of advice I can offer young people. So, you know, you're, you do what you do. You've got a business coach. Uh, you are part of organizations. You, you know, you're, you're a part of Rain, and, and to the degree that you know what's going on in the room uh, and listening to some of the speakers that we have, we're really, our whole focus is always around education and being the source and the resource for people in having success investing in real estate and actually making sure that we have individuals like you on the stage that are, you know, driven by education, have really, really great um, insights into what's going on in the mortgage market, for example. But beyond that, are you a reader? I mean, as a business owner, and do you, do you read a lot? Do you read a little? Kind of what's on your, what's on your thing that you do? Oh yeah, I, I like to read. Um, my girlfriend and I are—I wouldn't say avid readers. She's probably a bit more avid because she puts that before some of the things that I put um, on the table. You know, as far as our list of priorities, sometimes she's like, "I'm stressed out. I just have to read," and she'll read before she starts working. Mm -hmm. For me, if I'm stressed out, it's usually 
I can't do anything else. I got to go work out. <laughs> so right. we kind of have, and she works out a lot too, but I think that, um, in our list of hierarchies, both for both of us, reading is near the top of the list, but for her, it's even higher. But sometimes on a Saturday, we'll just go grab coffee. We'll sit down, we'll read for a couple of hours. And so, you know, I, I'd like to read more, um, finding more time, you know, finding the time to read is always a challenge, but I get through probably between audible and, and reading a physical book, probably about two books a month, I would say. So it's, I'm doing okay, but that's an area I'd like to, uh, to continue to improve on. And one thing actually I picked up from, uh, from my girlfriend, Christina was bringing a notebook with me and writing things down, you know, don't just read the book and then just let it flow out. Um, you know, bring a notebook with you. In fact, sometimes even multiple notebooks where certain notebooks are for certain types of notes, personal and business or whatever you want, but write down things that are important to you. And I think by the act of writing it down, if you remember from, you know, high school or college, just writing your notes down, it, it, it processes it better in the brain and allows you to, uh, to absorb that information better. So that's something that I'm really uh, trying to work on and get better at. Yeah. I, I, when I say I read a lot, I have to qualify it. I do read a lot, but uh, you, you mentioned you do physical and audible. I'm, I'm, I'm a huge audible fan. And to your point of writing things down, because I'm listening to it generally or, or almost always on my phone. Um, mm -hmm. I have happened to have a Samsung, a note nine where I actually have a pen built in. So I'm literally, I'll stop it and make notes in the files that I have that I, on my phone. So you're right about, I mean, some of the best ideas come up and, and to your point, it was interesting is that your girlfriend, when she's stressed, she wants to read when you're stressed, you want to work out. And, and I'm built, I'm kind of walked down the middle of that when I'm faced with a lot of business challenges or, or shit's happening. And I'm going, what the hell? I love to read because it gives me an outside point of view. They're gen, they're never fiction. The only time I really ever read fiction, by the way, is when I'm on vacation, but I take on a lot of reading and, and different because it, it really expands my perspective and actually inspires some ideas in solving problems. That's one of the reasons that I love to read in that regard. But the other, to your point is, you know, getting physical is like such a, it's, it's how I'm wired. I need that cathartic outlet. And it's interesting. The reason I, I shine a light on it is that if, I think if people can understand the, what actually supports them getting through a stressful time, a challenging time, if they can recognize it, they don't go down as deep as downward spiral. So you can let stress shut you down. Or if you realize that, you know something, I found a little bit of a secret sauce for me. My secret sauce is if I read, my stress is tempered. Or if I work out, it gets handled. So it's, it's cool that you guys have, uh, you and your girlfriend have kind of identified that part of it. Now you work out, what's your, what's your typical day? Like, are you a Richard Branson guy or are you, do you kind of look into some other leaders and say, Hey, if they're doing that, I'm going to do that too. So I'm up at five, you know, I, I work out, whatever your story is. Just a question. Yeah. I would say that my natural state isn't like waking up in the morning is not easy, but it's something that I'm getting better at. Um, it seems like a lot of people that, uh, that, have improved on waking up in the morning and had kids and then getting, uh, getting up in the morning is a bit easier, but my girlfriend and I have committed to trying to go to bed a bit earlier and waking up earlier. And, um, so usually we're up at around six or six thirty in the morning. Usually weekends, we sleep in a little bit later until seven thirty or eight o'clock, depending on what we have to do that day. I do find I get more work done in the morning. Time blocking is important. Trying to make sure that I block off time so that, uh, when I'm in the office, I usually try to focus on the mornings uh, on getting things done and working on the business. I've got a big whiteboard of, of tasks um, that uh, then need to chip away and make sure that those get done. As far as exercise is concerned, 
uh, we work out a few days a week with our trainer. Um, so that's three days a week. So those usually it's Tuesday mornings, uh, Friday mornings and Wednesday nights, which kind of gives us different types of workouts too. Usually a Wednesday night is a good, like heavy lift day where usually you're not going to be doing, you know, big heavy squats or deadlifts or anything like that. First thing in the morning without having eaten any food. And then usually what I try to do is fit in an extra one or two days, uh, in the gym by myself. I like to, I like to go and, and just pop in some music and listen to, uh, to the worst rap ever and just, you know, pump iron. <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's a nice stress relief I find. And then also play hockey. You usually have to sign up for two teams because I miss like 50% of the games because of uh, work and, and personal uh, commitments, but that way I can get some hockey in and that's really fun. It gives me that cardio and, um, I just love the sport. So it's a lot of fun. Did you grow up playing hockey by the way? A little late. Yeah. So I, I played a lot of street hockey growing up, but my parents, um, before, and this is kind of nuts thinking about it now, but, um, when we moved back to, uh, to BC, my dad was in the military, he quit eventually and, um, moved back to BC. And so when I was, this was 95, my dad was supporting a family of four making $15 an hour. And I just can't imagine that. And of course, inflation's a thing. So $15 an hour back then is a bit more than it is today. Um, but still it's kind of nuts. So, you know, me wanting to get into the most expensive sport you could possibly ask for, it's just not happening. And, um, and also, uh, getting up at 4am to drive me to practices was also not happening. So, um, eventually my grandparents actually helped me out a little bit, uh, and said, Hey, you really like this, this hockey thing. We'll help you out and, and get you into the sport bought all my gear for me and paid for the first year. Uh, but that was 14 years old. So I learned how to, uh, to skate the summer before, you know, rollerblading is one thing, but ice skating is, a, is still different technique wise. Uh, so I learned how to skate the summer before and, uh, first year playing uh, bantam and it's hitting. So <laughs> I, my dad loved, loved to call me Bambi on ice. Cause I could barely skate and I'm just getting rocked. Cause I was a, at the, at that time I was a bigger kid still. Um, so I could, I could hold my own, but not on skates. So I'd have smaller guys hitting me and I'd be falling over and stuff. And it was, it was pretty funny, but I just love the sport so much. And I, I still play it to this day. And, um, and, uh, it's a lot of fun. I, I enjoy trying to still get better and, um, and continue to work on my fitness and trying to tailor, tailor my fitness a little bit to, to get better at hockey still. Right. Have you evolved into any kind of meditation? And I want to go back to the sleep. I want to just comment on that mm -hmm. a little bit. Do, do any, have, have you investigated meditation? Have you kind of gone to that? Doing, yeah. Doing more of that. Um, that's an area that I've really, really wanted to focus more of my energy and time on. And, um, and I'm just slowly starting to get into it a bit now. Um, but it's an area that I think I'm still a little bit weak at. I think before you do it, it's probably hard to justify making the time to do it and they start getting the habit. And then it's from what I can gather, it's one of those things where you can't quite put your finger on it, but everything just seems to be working out a little bit better for you, you know? And so I do, I do acknowledge that, that that's an area that I need to, uh, to focus on a, a bit more. And, um, and my girlfriend does do a bit more than I do on it. So, and I, and she would, she would admit that she'd like to do it uh, more herself. I think it's a matter of fixing the sleep will help a bit because if we get up earlier, it's a little bit easier to not feel like you're in a rush to get through your day now. Um, and so I think that getting up a little earlier, having that time to meditate in the morning and then getting on through the day would be, would be kind of where I see my ideal self in the very near future. Yeah. And my wife, Stephanie and I have meditated for years. We trained in TM years ago and, and we, that's kind of our fallback, but we do all sorts of meditation and, and she's way better at it than I am. And I kind of go through periods of time. You know, what I can share with you in meditation is there's, there's 
those moments in time, which are awesome and they really helpful in the moment, but you find I've discovered with meditation over the years that, uh, ultimately it's not a short-term thing. It's actually what happens over the period of time so that, you know, a year later or six months later, you look back and you go, wow, a lot of things have really shifted and it's easy to actually attribute to meditation. And, uh, a lot of that is just the way you think and, and maybe your attitude towards some stuff. So that's a really, uh, interesting, uh, journey to be on. The question or the comment I have around sleep was just really interesting. So I'll share with you what I've learned a lot. I, sleep is the thing for me that I've really, really been studying the past couple of years. Now, I've always been a really naturally early riser. I mean, I, it doesn't seem to matter what time I go to bed. I'm always, I mean, regularly 5, 5.30 a.m., 5 a.m., you know, 4.30 a.m. And I occasionally sleep in, but that's not my, uh, my thing. And I actually average probably about five and a half, six hours a week of sleep. Now that's me. So I started looking into it because I always felt good. Like it's, it's like, I'm not tired. I don't feel like I need to, you know, lay down in the middle of the day. I like a nap occasionally, but it's not, it's not, it's not, I'm not driven to do that. The point of all of this is that we study sleep. So you were mentioning that your girlfriend is a bit of a night owl. You are like to sleep in, in the morning but there is what I've learning about this, and I'll share with you is that there is an actual natural state. It's a it's a bio it's a physiological phys, physiological thing, and not everybody's wired to be the same. My wife Stephanie is you know she'll go till midnight and or one in the morning, and then she'll sleep for ten hours. Like she's a great sleeper. Now she'll sometimes get up, and it's it's whatever she needs to do. But my point is is that. Stephanie, when she goes to sleep, she she's asleep. And but go to sleep at go to bed at nine o'clock, not gonna happen. She's just sometimes getting energy then. So what we've learned uh, over the years, once again, my wife's much smarter than I am, is to just really uh, be aware of her own natural, instinctual, physiological way of sleeping. So I've been reading some stuff about it. So long story is that number one, eight hours a night is a myth. That is consistently the message. Some people definitely need it. Others do not. And that don't beat yourself up for not being an early riser. As a matter of fact, if you can work your life around your natural sleep cycle, you'll actually be more productive. You'll be happier. And life would, in fact, be better. The The story that you need to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning or 6 o'clock in the morning because all us early risers, you know, say we do that and that's cool. It may not be the natural state. So... Research it. Understand your body type and your physiological kind of makeup. Your and and it really can be impactful. Change how you do stuff. Yeah, I think I read that in uh, Dave Asprey's book recently about how everybody has a different natural state. Yeah, and um, yeah, and I think I do think that looking back, um, when I felt like I had the best sleep and was most productive, was usually going to bed at ten or ten thirty and waking up at six. It's just hard to commit to that. That's the problem. You know, you have an ice hockey game one or two nights a week and you're getting to bed at 1130 or 12 and then you're tired the next day. So you sleep in and then, oh my gosh, now I got to get more stuff done during the day. So I got to stay at work later and you eat dinner later. And the next thing you know, it's 1030 and you haven't even thought about getting ready for bed. And the cycle is tough to stick to sometimes. So hundred percent something you you know, you got to work on that, I think. Yeah. yeah, well, it's always just an awareness around it. You know, when I know I don't have to get up early in the morning or, you know, and I, let's say I don't have a, a, a an early morning meeting. Lots of times because of, of my partners in uh, Toronto, I'm on a phone at 6 a.m. 
So mm-hmm. that's often what it is. And I'm, and I'm okay with that because I'm already up anyways, generally. But if I don't have a meeting in the morning, I'll, I'll just give myself permission to sleep in. And guess what? I don't sleep in. So it's just <laughs> what happens, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. But it's so impactful. It's so important. I think sleep, people beat themselves up because they think they, well, they're not getting eight hours. You know, it's, uh, I, I went to bed and I stayed up too late. I'm not getting up early enough. So there's a lot of internal dialogue that actually is uh, more detrimental than the lack of sleep that you get. I agree. I think one of the things that I've um, tried to do is is stick to the one and a half hour increments. I think that's actually more important because your body goes into deep sleep and then comes up and rises out of it and then goes back into deep sleep and roughly half one and a half hour increments. And so I think that that's more important because sometimes you get more sleep and wake up and feel groggy. You know, sometimes you get less sleep and wake up groggy and, and sometimes, you know, you wake up early and you feel like you had a great sleep and, you know, you had four and a half hours or six hours of sleep. You're like, hmm. Maybe I can get away with this and you try it the next night, you get six and a half hours. Like, oh no, getting less sleep doesn't work at all. But um, I'm trying to, to stick to those one and a half hour increments. And I think for me with exercising a lot and trying to build muscle, I think the seven and a half is a good number to hit. Um, that way I have full of recovery time to, uh, to build that muscle. Yeah. My ideal number is actually seven. I feel, but if, but I often am only hitting five and a half or six, that's kind of my average, but I don't, feel a lack of sleep. I'm, I'm more for quality of sleep now. That's really where I'm going is what is the quality of the sleep that I had? And it's such a big issue. I mean, gosh, it's just amazing. And uh, I'll share one other thing uh, is, do you have trouble getting to sleep? Do you ever have trouble getting to sleep? Never. No, you, you crash, <laughs> um, right? Oh yeah. 100%. So, but what's, I'm that same way. Like when I go to bed, five minutes lights out. Now, having said that, I was going through a period of time where lots was going on. I couldn't slow my brain down. And uh, one of the guys I work with, Nick Banks, he says to me, he goes, PF, you got to, uh, you, you got to download the app calm. I said, okay. So he says in that app is some really cool things. One of the things is bedtime stories. And I'm going, okay. So that just like that going, dude, are you kidding me right now? Yeah. Anyways. So I took it on anyways. And, uh, these are bedtime stories, 30 minute bedtime stories. And they're literally like Jack and the Beanstalk, um, <laughs> like kids. <laughs> Anyways, oh, wow. I thought you were going to say something like, Oh yeah, it's this other thing. No, it's, and they do, they yeah. do all sorts of things, you know, walks, you know, through Europe and they, but I'm not really interested in that style of listening yeah. anyways. And you know, Snow White, Beauty and the Beast. I mean, all sorts of stuff. And they're they're chunked in, and they have very specific readers who are really really equipped. Like one name, I'm not a good name dropper, anyways. But uh, uh, Matt uh, Matthew McConaughey is one of the storytellers. So they've got some really cool people, different voices, all this stuff. Here's here's the point of this whole thing. I have never once heard a whole story ever once. So when at that period of time where I was having trouble sleeping, it was like. All of a sudden, lights out, lights out, lights out. Now, now it's become a thing. I go, no, I got to listen to my bedtime story. <laughs> How ridiculous is that? Anyways, it That's works funny. for me. I've recommended to a number of people who uh, are are sleep deprived or challenging getting to sleep, and they're they're laughing about how ridiculous it is that they can listen to, uh, you know, a childhood or a child's uh, bedtime story and actually fall asleep and never hear the whole story. Yeah. It's, it's funny. It's an interesting topic. Boy, do I go down rabbit holes sometimes on these shows. <laughs> Sorry about that, Kyle. That's cool. That's it, a cool point. You know, bedtime stories. Bedtime stories, you know, so uh, try it out one time. Uh, I love the app, Calm, and apparently so do 100 million other people. So 
Uh, it must be working there somewhere. Okay, so let's go back to uh, you know the the kind of the success that you've had as a young entrepreneur. Are there any like are you part of a young entrepreneur organization? Are you part of a you know do you surround yourself with other young entrepreneurs? What's do you have a what's your kind of style in in doing that, Kyle? Yeah, um, I've been um, I've been in groups uh, before. The most recent group that I uh, that I got into was EO Entrepreneurial Organization. So mm-hmm. it's been around for a number of years, and uh, it has some you know off, let's say lofty requirements to get in. And so they don't just let everybody in. And I think that that was great. We actually just had our little um, getaway at Sonora Lodge, which is a great place, by the way, um, uh, last week. And it's just nice to talk to other business owners in a, uh, in a, in a, you know, in a way where everybody's just breaking down barriers right off the bat. There's an instant level of trust and, um, everybody just talks to each other. You know, I, I remember speaking to one guy about some of the challenges that I'm having in my business and, you know, he's got similar challenges or had similar challenges and was, you know, giving me certain advice and input that I thought that's actually a very different, unique way of looking at this problem. So, I definitely try to, uh, to to surround myself more with people that think like I do. This might be a lesson for millennials, but I found that over time, you know, your high school friends, you start to drift apart. Unfortunately, if you want to be a high achiever and do a lot of stuff, um, you're going to find that those high school friends just want to hang around and oh, let's you know come over and play video games again. I'm like, you know what? I don't really feel like playing video games anymore. So you start to drift away pe- from people, and that's okay. I think that we, when we're younger, we learn that your friends are your friends for a long time. And it's a really bad thing to not have those friends anymore. And I think as you get older, you realize that friends will come and go as you need them in your life. And I think that that was an important lesson for me to learn. And I learned that, you know, in my, my early to mid twenties, you know, the, the point of letting people go and then started to apply that more in my business too, I think as, as far as, you know, somebody's not working out, it's not doing either of you any favors um, to have them in your business. You're, showing resent, resentment towards them and they in, re, in return are showing it towards you and better to just go your separate ways faster as opposed to letting it linger. Well, wow, that's, you know, if people got nothing else out of the show and they're still listening in, that's such, such good advice and uh, such a great realization to have at a young age because being in business as long as I have and being in the rain room as long as I have with literally thousands of real estate investors and business owners is that, that one point is it's okay to let people go and it doesn't have to be with malice. It doesn't have to be in a, in a charged environment. It's just kind of, you know, we don't share the same values anymore. It's such an important lesson to get. And there's a really cool quote that I heard years ago that I think I've shared, but it's like, if you compromise your values for the sake of a relationship, you come to resent the relationship. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. And, and so if your values are shifting and changing, because they do, you know, your friends all of a sudden, if they're having children at, you know, at that age is common, their values change, their family focus, their kids focus, their, their values are about how do I create a great life for my kids? Well, you don't fit in that environment necessarily anymore, at least not on a regular basis. And your values are different. It is time to maybe sometimes let those relationships go. And certainly there's the other side of it, which is the kids that, you know, there are individuals that just don't ever seem to grow up or, or they're, you know, they're, they're still living in the past. So it's just such a great point. I'm, I'm really uh, glad that you shared that because uh, it's certainly a message that more people need to get. Yeah. So Kyle, 
you know, as we wind down the conversation, I always like to get into, you know, some chats about what I call some rapid fire. They're very rarely rapid fire because we, it just takes us down other rabbit holes. But let's talk about that. Are you ready for that? Yeah. Ready to take it on? Okay. Yeah. I, know, I know you would be. Let's talk about, go back to books. What are you reading right now? Or what is your favorite book to gift to somebody? Uh, aside from your own. Oh, by the way, we haven't even talked about your book. Yeah. Okay, so well, yeah, that was a great plug and accidental plug. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so what? What was okay? So, go ahead, Rockstar. Yeah, Rockstar Real Estate Investing. Yeah, um, published back in April and became an Amazon bestseller. Um, so, the point of the book is just to educate people on um, on you know making your first investments and really giving people the fundamentals. And so, if you or anybody you know is interested in learning more about real estate investing and just doesn't really know where to start, that's a great, uh, easy to read book. Um, we really designed it to be an easy, easy read. Okay, so aside from your own book, which is. Yeah. Perfect. What uh, what other book or what have book what books have you gifted in the past? Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's Great probably book. one of my best ones. Yeah. Like if you look at it, you, you read it. I, I reread it recently, and I'm looking at this. I'm like, man, there's a lot of quotes in here that I use a lot. <laughs> you know, and you, and you hear a lot, yeah. and then you kind of forget where they came from. And they a lot of them are from that book. That's probably one of the best books ever. So that's another um, that's another oldie, but so current. Oh my gosh! Great book. It is. Oh, yeah, it's, it's crazy how it's, you know, it's fairly old, but yet everything is 100% current and very applicable. And it's not just for business, it's for personal growth and just being being better. The book I'm reading right now is called The Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande, I think it is. Um, mm -hmm. But something that was very interesting and applicable to my business was, you know, one of the, the things they start us off with very quickly is he's a surgeon um, and they're trying to figure out ways of how do we eliminate certain things ha from happening during surgeries. And, you know, the first feedback they get is we're surgeons, you know, you can't narrow down what we do into a minute checklist, right? It's impossible. It's not going to help things. And, um, and of course that was the excuse that I used in my business too. It's like, Oh, I can't systemize a mortgage process. There's too many moving parts. And listening to that guy say, it's doable and, and listing out the number of different types of surgeries and complications. I'm thinking, okay, there's no excuse. <laughs> there's absolutely no excuse. If you can make a checklist for surgeries, you can definitely make a checklist for mortgages too. So I think it's important. You look at almost any big, big business that's scaled well, they have a way of doing things. A McDonald's burger is cooked for X number of seconds on one side and X number of seconds on the other. It's two clicks for the salt and one click for the pepper or whatever. You know, it's, it's very... They've drilled it all down to make it really easy. And I think that, that will allow me to hire people easier, uh, train people easier, and scale the business easier. So um, that's the book that I'm reading right now. And I'm just finishing up. And it's, uh, it's a good, insightful read. Cool. Great. Thanks for that one. So we go down the list. What's your favorite swear word? <laughs> favorite swear word? Yeah, one, you got to have a go-to. You're a hockey player, so it's like F-bombs well, all over the place. Well, it literally is the F-bomb, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to think of a more interesting one, but yeah, the <laughs> F-bomb as a hockey player, yeah, definitely. Especially especially when somebody, you know, I'm usually a defenseman, and somebody dipsy-doodles through me and, he, you know, puts the puck between my legs and scores a goal. Yeah. I'm usually almost breaking the stick and, and yelling that out so all the fans can hear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny though. My guest on the show is, is, you know, I've got, there's, there's really nothing much in between. Occasionally I get somebody who's, you know, said shit, you know, but fuck all the time. Like that's a big one. And then the extreme of that is, no, I don't swear. 
And I yeah, go, really? Yeah. How's that even possible? I know, I know. Gosh, I judge myself harshly. I don't have that yeah. kind of control. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a favorite inspirational quote? Don't wait to buy real estate, buy real estate and wait. Ah, because you're in the real estate game. That's <laughs> actually course, a good yeah. one. That's a good one. <laughs> I like that one. Yeah. I think it's I think it's very uh it's very interesting. Um, but that's that's one that I use quite often. So when you think about something a profession, if you will, outside of what you're doing, what would it be if it wasn't this? Hmm. I don't know. You know, I've thought about that too. I've thought about what would I be doing if I wasn't doing this? Um, it would be another business, it would, you know, and, um, and if, like if the right thing comes along and it's a wonderful idea and I'm very, very into it and, and attracted to it, then I could see myself doing something else at some point in my life, mm-hmm. you know, but uh, at the end of the day, I think that's, that's, growing and building a business is really exciting and it's really fun. And so it's just a matter of what that business looks like, but finance is great overall. I really like finance. And I think that the evolution of the company moving into more business financing and and commercial lending is, uh, is, is really cool because now I'm seeing more opportunities. And I think that may open the door for more opportunities to become an investor in other businesses and, and, uh, and whatnot. So, I mean, I'm very excited for that. Cool. So if God exists, what do you want him to say? What do you want her to say when you get to the gates? Yeah. Um, I think I just, I just want to hear that I was a good person, you know, that, uh, that you, you, you did well, you, you, you killed people. it, killed it. You, you killed it. You know, <laughs> you were, you were a net positive, you're, you're a positive impact on as many people as you possibly could have been. You know, Perfect. I believe in, I believe in energy and I think that, uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of things we don't quite expect can't quite explain via science. I'm very keen on like the merge between science and, you know, Eastern and Western understanding of how the world works is kind of cool. Cool. On a scale of one to 10, how weird do you think you are? Oh, I'm up there. <laughs> I'm a nine. I'm a nine. Oh, you yeah, are? I, hold it to- I hold it together on stage, man. But <laughs> okay. uh, I don't want, if I showed how weird I was, I don't know how many clients I'd have. Okay. So. In behind the scenes, like you're, you're just really out there. Okay. Got I'm it. wacky. Yeah. Especially <laughs> from a humor perspective. Sometimes I have to think, uh, how are people going to interpret this? Maybe I shouldn't say that one. Yeah. Room desk or your car. What do you clean first? Room desk or car room. Favorite tune. Do you have one? Uh, yeah, um, I've got a lot of favorite tunes. I'm listening to a lot of uh, electronic music right now. Um, I can't narrow it down to like a favorite song. Uh, I think overall, like my favorite artist of all time is probably Tool. Favorite movie? Do you have one? The Matrix. Oh, that's an oldie. Yeah. Cool. Do you have a favorite Netflix or anything that you're streaming right now? You know, the only thing that we're really finding time for right now, other than just the odd show here and there would probably be a lot of the, uh, the wildlife, uh, shows series, you know, like life and, and planet earth. Those ones, those are really cool. And Kyle, what are you grateful for today? I'm grateful for my health today. Hmm. Yeah. I think that's, uh, going back to quotes. Um, I think it was the Dalai Lama who said he's shocked how many people, sacrifice their health for their wealth when they're early when they're young and then they sacrifice their wealth for their health when they get older and i think that it's important to try and maintain that balance as you as you uh, as we get older and not not try to uh, to fall into that oh, oh so common trap yeah that's a good one today 
I'm always grateful for the guests on the Everyday Millionaire podcast and the ability to and the opportunity to uh, have these kinds of conversations and to share with listeners. And I'm also today grateful, yes, for my health, for my wife and family. Always, I got to go back to that. It's just keep showing up. And I, I live in a lot of gratitude for uh, my wife, Stephanie, and my daughter, Erin, and grandkids. So thank you for being on the show, man. No worries. It was awesome. Thanks again, pal. Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, If you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.